Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Sarah Ladislaw sat down with Trevor Hauser to discuss how we can assess the impacts from climate change. Trevor is a partner at the Rhodium Group and co-director of the Climate Impact Lab. Until recently, we didn't have great ways to assess or track these physical impacts. Now advancements in computing and scientific modeling are allowing us to gather much more data than before and helping us understand the range of climate-related risks and the potential economic impacts for communities around the world. Sarah and Trevor also talk about how assessing climate risk has become an increasingly important part of how bankers, investors, and insurers gauge the long-term sustainability of their portfolios. Let's turn it over to Sarah. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for joining us again on Energy 360. Hey, Sarah. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so we had you here a couple years ago to talk about progress on you know, combating climate change across a range of things. And back then, you were talking a little bit about something that you're doing as co-director of the Climate Impact Lab. Could you just reintroduce us to what that is and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So this is a multi-institutional research collaboration between the University of Chicago, University of California, Rutgers, and the Rhodium Group. And we started it, I guess, five or six years ago now. And the goal was to provide evidence-based local information about the impacts of climate change on a range of different sectors of the economy. And uh, and to do that, we had to pull together uh, the kind of interdisciplinary team that hasn't traditionally existed in this field. So getting a bunch of climate scientists to work side by side with economists. And then we had to bring on a bunch of data engineers because this kind of research is uh, is extremely uh, data intensive. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that that has recently, you know, been talked about a lot more in the news is the impacts of climate change, just because I think people on a general basis uh, in the general population are recognizing the impacts of climate change. The other place where we're encountering this a lot is sort of within the financial disclosure and the sort of the climate risk field through processes like the TCFD process that came out a couple of years ago. A lot of that conversation so far is really focused on whether or not companies and financial institutions are able to approximate the different kinds of climate risk that they face. One of the ones we've talked the most about is transition risk, which is essentially is there going to be some sort of policy that requires one to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how exposed are different companies and different financial institutions to that kind of risk and what's the broader risk to the financial system? But the work that you guys are doing in the Climate Impact Lab is now sort of feeding into the other big element of risk there, which is um, the physical impact risk. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that work that you guys have done within the Climate Impact Lab is sort of feeding into that process where people are trying to understand what the physical risks might be and how it affects their portfolios? Yeah, sure. So if you're a company or an investor and you want to assess the impacts of climate policy on your portfolio, so transition risk, as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of different data sources you can go to. You can a uh, growing number of companies are disclosing their emissions. Some are doing scenario uh, exercises where they look at what would happen to their operations if 
policy that moved energy markets towards a two-degree consistent future came to pass. And, uh, and so both companies and investors have increasingly been getting their arms around that transition risk piece. Physical risk, assessing physical risk has been a lot harder uh, for both companies and investors because the data just hasn't been available. So you know, if I'm a company with global operations and I want to understand what the impact of climate change is to my operations, I need to know how to deal with um, sophisticated high-resolution climate models. I need to know what's going to happen to sea level rise or hurricane activity or heat waves, not just in all of the areas that I have operations, but I also need to know how those things are going to impact my customers and the demand for my goods. And and that information just hasn't been available. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we realized that all of this research that we were doing at the lab, you know, and the primary goal of that research is to provide data and information to the academic community, to public policymakers, that that laid a foundation that either companies or investors could use to assess their uh, their climate risk. Because we're providing these evidence-based economic estimates at the hyper-local level, at the individual asset level, uh, that a individual company or a asset manager could take that information and use it to uh, conduct the kind of physical climate risk assessment that the organizations that you mentioned, uh, the TCFD, and now there's this group of central bankers that are working together to try to assess the risk of climate change to financial stability, that they could use this kind of information to conduct those those assessments. Now, that sounds, that's a fun word, sort of hyper-local. What does that mean? Like, what kind of things can you do, like, for a company or someone that's interested in evaluating their physical climate risk to whatever their asset base is? And, and how do you how do you do that? Yeah. Um, so let me use a recent example. We partnered with uh, BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world, to look at the impacts of climate change on three different asset classes. So U.S. municipal bonds. BlackRock's one of the largest holder of municipal bonds in the U.S. Commercial real estate and U.S. utilities. For municipal bonds, what we did is analyze the impact of both changes in the climate that have occurred over the past few decades till now, as well as projected changes in the climate going forward on economic activity in those municipalities. And so that ranged from hurricane damage to buildings and infrastructure to climate-driven changes in agricultural production uh, to changes in labor productivity or energy costs. Uh, And we uh, valued all of those damages and measured it relative to local economic activity to give BlackRock a sense of which municipalities face the most economic risk from climate change uh, in a way that can help facilitate a conversation with those municipalities about what they're doing to make their areas more uh, resilient. So uh, to your question on hyperlocal, that analysis was done at a metropolitan level. Mm-hmm. For commercial real estate, we have a database of every building, commercial, residential, industrial building in the U.S., and so they gave us a list of 60,000 individual properties, and we assessed there the probability that that property would get flooded, that it would be exposed to hurricane-force winds, uh, average temperatures, the odds of extreme heat at those properties, in addition to what those changes meant for Uh, reconstruction costs after storms and energy costs in those buildings. And what does a group like BlackRock or some some other group that you do this with, I mean, what are then the decision set that they make with that information that you provide them? 
Yeah, so I think a couple. One is to include it in their uh, in their risk models, so they can make sure that their portfolio, their you know, BlackRock, like other asset managers, manages retirement funding from people like you and me. And you know, part of their obligation to their clients is to make sure that their retirement savings are protected from future risks. And uh, and so this information allows them to do that kind of stress test and make sure that people's retirement portfolios are are sufficiently protected. I think it enables a resilience investments in both the individual buildings that they may own and in the municipalities where they're holding bonds by providing this basis of information for a municipality to better understand the risk of climate change to them. It uh, it can help facilitate a conversation with those municipalities about uh, about how to make their sewer systems, their highways, their uh, uh, their overall economy more resilient to changes in the climate. And I would imagine a lot of people assume that folks like you know, do this kind of thing anyway, right? And so how is what you're doing different than the kind of sort of stress testing or planning around impacts from, you know, weather variation over time? How is this different from what we've traditionally done? Yeah, so there's been over the past few years a growing amount of work at a local level to assess the impacts of climate change. So if I'm a, you know, an infrastructure planner, you know, in New Jersey, let's say, I'll get the best available information about sea level rise in my location, about storm activity, about heat waves, and then I'll try to develop a resilient strategy for my community with that data. If you're a company or an asset manager or a regulator like a central bank, you need to do that methodologically consistently for everywhere in the country or everywhere in the planet. And so that's been the big challenge, right? There's the the individual facilities or individual localities have had the kind of information available to them that they would need to do a climate risk assessment. Some haven't done it because of a lack of interest or focus, uh, but that information has been available. Uh, what hasn't been available is economy-wide, methodologically consistent, global estimates that a portfolio manager or a corporate risk assessment team could use. But you mentioned there's a group of these central bankers you're getting together and talking about this. I mean, what what sort of what are they focusing on in terms of doing that kind of risk? What are they hoping to sort of uncover or at least talk about in, in by way of me- mediating those risks? Yeah. So this kind of grew out of reflections that the macroprudential regulatory communities, that central bankers and other regulators, had after the uh, after the subprime crisis, after the Great Recession, that there you know can be lurking in the financial system these large systemic risks that need to be identified early so that um, mitigation strategies can be developed, and so. This group, NGFS, is looking to see whether the financial institutions that they regulate have significant risk from climate in a way that would have systemic implications. And uh, and so that can be anything from does an increase in hurricane activity in the U.S., is that create risk for community banks uh, that under that underwrite those mortgages and broader regional financial institutions would flooding risk in Europe create supply chain risks that could have broader implications for regional economies they're still at the early stages of that research where they're trying to identify scenarios that central banks can use to conduct rigorous but you know kind of consistent stress testing of, of combined risk. 
We've talked a lot on this program about the use of scenarios for the transition side of the equation, right? So that's the incorporation of some two degree or less scenario and, and companies sort of trying to figure out whether or not they're resilient to that kind of you know policy profile over a particular period of time. What does a scenario look like on the impact side of the equation, on the physical risk side of the equation? Do you try and approximate it quite narrowly or do you have a fairly wide range of impacts that, you know, an institution would consider? Yeah, so I could talk about how we do it and then uh, maybe give a little bit of comments on how I think NGFS and some of the central banks are thinking about it right now based on a report they published last week. Uh, So when we do this work, we use a range of global emissions scenarios. So one key piece of uncertainty is what's going to happen to emissions in the future. And we use those from this kind of common database of emission scenarios that are developed by the scientific community um, called representative concentration pathways because the scientific community likes to make, <laughs> make their terms super accessible it's to normal people. Yeah. So that's first bit of uncertainty is what happens to emissions. The second is how will the climate respond to those changes in emissions? And what we do there is we combine uh, the 20-ish leading global climate models developed by research teams around the world that are trying to answer that question. So each of those climate modeling groups will get an emission scenario, and then they try to predict you, through their model what will happen to temperature, precipitation, or sea level rise. We combine the output of all of those models to create a probability distribution of future outputs, right? So for this emission scenario, you'll likely have X to Y change. That is important, we think, because there are some changes in the climate where there's a really high degree of agreement across models, and so we can have much more confidence about them. Uh, Like changes in temperature, uh, there's much more agreement. And there are other changes where there's less agreement across the models, like local precipitation patterns, where the information is still important, but you would use it in a different way. Mm -hmm. So you'd use it more in a stress test type of way. So let's say precip patterns in the Midwest grow by 30%, like this model says. What if they decline by 30%, like this model says? Which if I'm, you know, worried about financial system stability, I want to stress test both of those, both of those, both of those bounds, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the third is there's some uncertainty in how any given change in the climate will impact economic activity, right? So we combine all of those together. And what we give to decision makers is for the place that they're interested in, what is the likely range of outputs and what is the very likely range of outputs, and then they can use that in their stress testing, right? So what kind of confidence interval do they want to have um, in, uh, in assessing climate risk? That's the way we do the research. NGFS, so they published a report last week that outlined some scenarios that they're still developing. And you know, presumably they will end on a more discrete set of scenarios and the kind of full range of analysis that uh, that we do just to make it more manageable for regulators uh, to uh, to grapple with. So they're still in that process, but it'll it'll probably be a set of illustrative scenarios that do a good job of bounding the range of potential outcomes. So right now you guys have focused mostly on the United States, but you're looking at focusing more broadly globally on what some of the climate impacts look like and doing this kind of analysis. One of the things that I find really interesting in some of the work that we do here is when people think about the impacts of climate change, they really think of them as sort of like discrete weather events and not sort of the 
multitude of impacts that can happen as a result of that. And can you talk a little bit about how you think about looking at the impacts of climate change and things like migration or the impacts of climate change and, you know, other other like civil conflict or things like that? Yeah. So as you said, we uh, prototyped our method in the U.S. and published that in uh, science in 2017 and, and, uh, and have for the past few years been expanding that method globally. And we have our climate projections, sea level rise projections for, you know, all parts of the world. And what we're doing now is, uh, is doing the econometric research to assess what the impact of those changes in the climate will mean for different types of social or economic activity. So that includes mortality rates, changes in energy costs, um, damage to coastal property and infrastructure, civil conflict, migration, agricultural production, labor productivity. And what we find when we do this research, and we found it in the U.S., is that some of the types of impacts that people think of that first come to mind when you talk about climate risk are not actually the ones that matter most mm-hmm. to an economy, right? So I think, you know, if you pulled 15 people on the street about what the impact of climate change is going to be, they'd probably talk about sea level rise, okay. right? And sea level rise is a very significant risk over the very long term. Right now, the most significant cost of climate change around the world has been changes in heat. And those tend to be... Um, less high profile, but more economically destructive. And that ranges from, you know, changes in how much outdoor work you can do, changes in how productive you are in your in indoor work. So one of the things we find is that uh, even if you work in an air-conditioned office, when it's really hot out, the first hour you spend indoors is significantly less productive because your body core is still cooling off. People systematically on air con- under air condition their buildings relative to what's optimal for indoor labor productivity. Mm-hmm. Civil conflict rates are highly sensitive to changes in temperature, um, as are migration patterns, and we see this historically in the you know in the data that. A heat wave or a drought that contributes to changes in agricultural production can have large-scale implications for civil conflict. Did a bunch of research on the relationship between temperature and suicide rates in India, and there's a very strong relationship between heat waves and suicide. Uh, so there's there's all of these ways. You know, we are highly, highly impacted by the climate around us. And we've done a lot as a civilization to protect ourselves against that, buildings and air conditioning, but we're still pretty vulnerable to the elements and relatively small changes in those climate conditions can have really outsized economic impacts. And the impacts are really not evenly spread. That's the other kind of key message that's come through in this research is some places are at much, much, much more risk than others. And within the U.S., as well as across the world, it tends to be the, you know, the poorest and most vulnerable that bear the greatest cost and risk from uh, from climate change. One of the things that has been interesting for me to see over the last several years as we've talked about this larger financial risk of climate change, and again, on this more on the sort of mitigation side of the equation or transition risk side of the equation, is just how much people learned about how much they didn't know about the risks that they bear. And and even in the TCFD process, which we've mentioned a couple of times, it's not like they came to some sort of prescribed solution set to that set of risks. It was really about starting a conversation right, between the sort of the bearers of the risk and the people who, you know, in, invest in them. 
and say, how, what are you going to do? How are you going to mitigate that? And it's happened over a very short period of time, right? I mean, it's a really, it's a much more sophisticated conversation that people, regardless of what they actually think the policy environment's going to do, feel like they have to be involved in, right? Because they really want to sort of understand their risk profile better. What do you, what do you think is going to happen with this side of the conversation, right? The more that you're able to bring to bear all these insights and people are able to access them in several years' time, like, what do you think is going to be the conversation we're having about these risks and, and how prepared we are uh, or are not? Yeah. So first, I think people are going to be pretty surprised about the ways in which that risk manifests. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be aligned with their priors, right? So who would have thought that, you know, wildfires in California would lead to one of the largest corporate bankruptcies in U.S. history? Um, that probably wouldn't have been in the top 10 list of financial risks of climate change if you had, if you'd asked market participants, you know, a couple of years ago. I think we will start to see as storm activity and geography in the U.S. changes, where some of the breaking points are in the mortgage market and property prices that are large in magnitude, very geographically concentrated, and have some larger systemic impacts to them. You know, my hope for where we'd be in a couple of years as the kind of research we're doing and other groups are doing uh, become more widely available is that decision makers, public policymakers, nonprofits, corporates, financial services firms, you know, have both the tools and the language to be able to explore both what risk they face, and then what risk others face that that impacts them. Mm -hmm. And to be able to start taking the types of precautionary steps that we need to take to make ourselves more resilient. I mean, look, like for the next two decades, the changes that we're seeing in the climate are pretty much baked in. They're going to continue regardless of what we do on the emissions side, right? Um, The pace at which we reduce emissions globally will determine how catastrophic this gets over the middle and second half of the century. Um, But physical climate risk is here to stay no matter what. And and it has significant implications for local economies, for equity. And uh, and there's a lot of things that we can do to make people more protected. And that can happen at an individual firm level. It can happen at a community level. It can happen at a financial system level. And, and we're pretty excited that the advances that have been made in the research, the advances that have been made in computing that allow uh, that allow us and other groups to do this work at a scale that hasn't been possible before, to make it available to people that haven't had access to it before, will uh, will facilitate that you know that uh, that 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 kind of uh, uh, discussion. You can't manage what you can't measure, and uh, and up until this point, you haven't really been able to measure this very well, and that's now changing. Yeah. Well, that's great. For anyone who's thinking about, you know, wanting to learn more about this, where what are the resources that you would recommend they go to? Yeah, most information on the work we do is uh, is available at uh, impactlab.org. I would also encourage folks to follow what the TCFD, uh, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, is doing, and uh, and the work that this group of central bankers, the NGFS, is doing is really exciting and really important. They just put out a a report last week. Their ongoing work streams uh, as part of that process that will have significant implications for the way that financial regulators think about these and manage these risks going forward. So I'd encourage people to follow that as well. That's great. Well, thanks very much, Trevor, for uh, telling us about your work, and, and we will be sure to be following that discussion. My pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. As always, thanks for listening to Energy 360. Be sure to check out the work of the Climate Impact Lab on their website. And you can find more episodes of Energy 360 on CSIS.org, on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 